Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. It was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast. Let there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon, the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. Mm. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So they sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I might eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. So his disciples went out, came into the city, and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dipped with me in this dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you this morning that you're here with us as you've promised. We read about you in history on these pages, but now we pray to you in this moment, knowing that you are with us present ruling and reigning alive at the right hand of the Father. And so we come to you this morning as our, as, as our Savior. You're our Lord. You're our Shepherd. And we just want to come to you as those that need your guidance and your leadership and your work in our lives. God, we're, we can be so consumed with our own work in life, what we have to do, our own task list, the things that we have accomplished, the next levels that we have to get to. But maybe this morning, God, just sit and cease to receive your work, the greater work, what you want to do in our lives. So we give you the space to do that now, to speak to us, Jesus, to use your word as that tool in your hand to shape us and and really to bring us further into who you are. So Holy Spirit, we invite you here to be the ultimate one speaking. God, I ask you to get me out of the way so that you can minister to your church today and God, in your grace, that you would use me to preach what you have to say. We ask you to speak to us in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. Well, if you've been with us for some time, really this year, you know that we have been working our way through this special book of the Bible in the New Testament. It's actually the second book in the New Testament. Um, And it's the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is one of four biographies of the life of Jesus, uh, having to do with when he arrived on the scene, 
most of the Gospels start with his birth, which is coming up. We'll celebrate that. Uh, Mark's Gospel starts with Jesus just arriving on the scene of his ministry at around 30 years old. But then it follows those important years of his life here on earth, fulfilling his public ministry. And then, of course, ultimately going to the cross, being put in the grave, and victoriously rising three days later. That's the, the life of Jesus. And each gospel gives almost a different perspective, not competing, but more complementary views of the life of Jesus. Out of all those gospels, the gospel of Mark, many have looked at as like the source material of those gospels. It's the earliest dated biography um, penned by a guy named John Mark. For short, they called him Mark. But John Mark was one of Peter's disciples. Do you guys remember this? So Peter was pretty close with Jesus, you could say, right? Like he's on every page in every event in the life of Jesus. And so many people believe that what this gospel really is, is like Peter is dictating to John Mark everything that he saw Jesus do. And John Mark is scribing and he's writing it down. So this is a firsthand eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And this gospel, with these events in the life of Jesus, it gives us a special angle to the way in which Jesus lived. Like, it, it really wants us to see what Jesus was like. And maybe every gospel does that to some degree, but, but especially Mark. Mark wants us to know WWJD. Like, really, okay, as corny as that may be, thank you for obliging, okay? What would Jesus do? Like, what is he really like? We have so many of our own invented ideas about Jesus. We have these caricatures of Jesus, these versions of him that take some truth and then make it this other truth that's really not exactly him. And so what we've been trying to do is come to the gospel of Mark with humble hearts, with open eyes, with an open mind to say, Jesus, show us who you really are. Jesus, keep us from settling for our assumptions of you but bring us deeper into a true understanding of who you are. And so that's what Mark is helping us with. And let me just give you a quick outline. This is really cool. Mark 1 through 11, those 11 chapters, you know this by now, right? That deals with the, with the last three years in the life of Jesus, ages 30 to 33 there, as he is fulfilling the ministry and mission that the Father gave him. Mark 1 through 11, you could read all about all the things that Jesus did in service to the Father. When you get to chapter 11, chapters 11 through 16 in the Gospel of Mark, it's literally an entire shift towards the last seven to eight days, really, in the life of Jesus. So you have, listen again, you have 10 chapters that deals with three years, and then you have the final six chapters that deal with seven days. That's pretty interesting. Some scholars have said that the Gospel of Mark is really a it's a passion narrative. Passion has to do with the sufferings of Jesus last week. It's a passion narrative with a 10-chapter introduction. I like that. Like 10 chapters just, just leading up ultimately to where we are actually this morning uh, here in chapter 14. Now, where are we in the calendar? We're in the last week of Jesus' life, and a lot has happened in these chapters. Uh, this week started on Palm Sunday. You remember that in Mark 11? Jesus rides victoriously, triumphantly into Jerusalem. He goes right into the temple. He sees the corruption in the temple, and he goes, I need to go sleep on this, because what I want to do is flip more than tables right now. And so I'm going to go home. I'm going to sleep on this. He comes back the next day. I love that model of Jesus. He doesn't react in anger, but he responds. He comes back the next day. That's a Monday. And he brings in the business of the kingdom to the temple. He's flipping tables. He's, he's wrecking shop. He is righteously angry at the injustice that he sees. In this place where people are supposed to connect with God, it's, it's instead been monetized for certain people to make money, and they're exploiting people's spiritual needs. It's really wicked and sad. So he goes crazy. He's flipping tables, flipping chairs. It's, it's an epic moment. And he's rebuking. He's rebuking, and, and really he's condemning the religious system that is. That's a Monday. Just, you know, another Monday. <laughs> Jesus ends that Monday. He comes back the next day. That's Tuesday. And according to what we read here in Mark, that is a long Tuesday. Tuesday, have you ever had a long Tuesday? Tuesday in Mark is really chapters, the second half of chapters 11 all the way to 13. And Jesus has got a lot going on. I mean, you know, we've all had those days where 
just through the relational interactions and deposits we have to make and the difficult conversations. I don't know if you've had those days. I def- I'm describing the life of a pastor, by the way. But, but we, all have our own, we all have our own versions of those days that are really exhaustive. They, were, they pull a lot out of us. Well, Jesus had one of those. I mean, from dueling with the Pharisees, and just waxing the floor with them is an important detail. But dueling with the religious leaders who are there, who are, who are threatened by Jesus. And then, you know, just some casual eschatology classes with his disciples. Jesus, when are you coming back and how can we know? Jesus spends a, a whole chapter. We took four weeks looking at what Jesus had to say about the end of the world. No big deal, you know, the end of the world. Uh, Jesus spent a whole chapter on that. And so you just have a lot going on in the life of Jesus for that day, and and maybe two, but you certainly know it's a lot there. It's really, can I just say this, especially when you see the Gospel of John, Jesus models what it looks like to finish well, to finish well. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever had that job that you had one week left, and you're like, I got one week left, like this is pretty much going to be a work vacation. I'm not going to try extra. I'm going to, like I'm out of here. All right, so like you're physically there, but your heart and mind are gone, and you're showing up to work, but like you're not as reliable as you need to be. I'm, I'm thinking of a past experience I've had with this personally. Jesus doesn't represent that. Sorry, my breath just got taken away. My wife had to just walk in in the middle of my sermon like that. Why'd you do that, babe? Now she's hiding behind the curtain. Okay. Um, it's not cool, babe. Um, what was I saying? Look at that, huh? Take my breath away. Now. I literally forgot what I was saying, Brittany. You're amazing. Okay, this is getting awkward. Let me try to move back to the Bible, okay? Yeah, Long Tuesday and stuff. Oh, yeah, like finishing well. <laughs> um, so Jesus is finishing well, okay? That's what I'm trying to say. And, and, and he truly is. Jesus is not holding back on this last week of, of his life here on earth. Jesus is like, I, I am going to give every last part of me to what God has called me to. It's such a great model for us. Maybe you're in a season right now where you're fin- it's a finishing season. It's a last week, a last month, a last year. What would it look like to you to look like for you to look like Jesus or to look at Jesus and just go, I'm going to give every last part of me to what God has called me to. That's what we see here. It's really beautiful. He's pouring out into his disciples. And it tells us in the passage we read that verse uh, 1 of chapter 14 what Damien read for us it says this after 2 days Two days later, it was the Passover. So that's where we are in the calendar here. This is important context. On Tuesday, Jesus is teaching. He's dueling. He's contesting. He's pouring every last bit of him out into his disciples who he's preparing for his departure. Now, Mark tells us that two days go by. It's now a Thursday in the calendar here. And on this Thursday, it's Passover. This is that yearly Passover week in Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands of families, Jewish families, have traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the the Passover, which commemorates God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, most beautifully displayed by that Passover lamb, that blood that was on the doorpost. Whenever there was that application of the blood, that angel of death that came for the firstborn would pass over. There was an atoning sacrifice so that the judgment passed over that home ultimately points to Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb. But they're celebrating that. This was commanded by God in Exodus 12 for God's people to gather to celebrate that Passover event and to celebrate God's deliverance. And that's what's going on in the context here. It just so happens that it perfectly times up with Jesus' crucifixion, the ultimate Passover lamb. It also tells us that it's the the Feast of Unleavened Bread that's happening at the same time, this Passover meal. And so this is sort of the context that we jump into in chapter 14. And what we've tried to do each week as we look at the story is, again, we want to zero in on an aspect of the way of Jesus. So let's get to some note-taking. If you like to take notes, and even if you don't, write this down. In this passage, we see the way that Jesus divided. That's what we see here in this section. The way Jesus divided. Here in these events on Passover, leading up to Jesus' arrest and betrayal, that's going to be next week, Jesus' arrest and betrayal. I mean, we've, we really only have, yeah, we have four weeks left in the Gospel of Mark. And then we get to Christmas. We go back to his birth. <laughs> he died. He rose. He was born. It's going to be awesome. Um, <laughs> but we got four weeks left here. And... Um, And these events leading up to Jesus' arrest, betrayal, crucifixion, 
we see the way Jesus divided. Every week, we're looking at a different aspect of his way, and this is what we see here in this passage. Now, I would, you know, I would guess that for most of us, division or bringing division is not exactly something that we would naturally or typically attribute to Jesus, like Jesus the great divider. We don't really think that way about him, but let me say that division is a facet of Jesus' life and ministry that, that Scripture highlights for us. Scripture highlights an aspect of Jesus being not just a great unifier, but also Jesus is a great divider. Jesus divides. Um, you could kind of understand it this way, and here's how I would kind of visualize it. Jesus Christ is the most unifying and, at the same time, the most dividing figure in all of history. There is no one that has done more to unify humanity more than Jesus, and there is no one who has done more to divide humanity more than Jesus. I'm speaking here of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the real figure who lived 2,000 years ago. Whether or not you, you know, however you feel about him, I'm just speaking facts of history. I mean, literally, our calendar is divided over his existence, B.C. and A.D. Jesus is both the most unifying and the most dividing. Notice I didn't put the word divisive. I don't, really, I don't think that really fit as much. But he is the most dividing figure in all of history. Let's start with unifying. I mean, this is... This is one of the main points of Scripture, that Jesus and Jesus alone is able to unite humanity in a way that nothing and no one else can. Jesus is the great unifier of humanity. Let's start here. Jesus is a unifier. Je this is what's so beautiful about a church. Jesus, Jesus alone, is able to bring every kind of person together into one community. Um, old and young, black and white, Rich and poor, tall and short, religious, secular background, wherever you find yourself, the Bible teaches that all are made one in Jesus, who has broken down the middle wall of separation that was between us as humanity. You see, whatever our differences are, we have more in common than we do in contrast. What do we have in common? We were all, despite our backgrounds, colors, heights, whatever the differences are, we were all made by God in his image, formed in our mother's womb for relationship with God. And we are all equally in need of restoration of that relationship. We have all fallen short. We have all been broken off. But Jesus, listen, he's the savior of all men. He doesn't favor one demographic. He doesn't favor one kind of person or one country or, or one socioeconomic status. Jesus' heart is for the world. It's for people. When Jesus sees people, he sees people equally made in his love and equally in need of his salvation. So when we come together as a church, we come together as a bunch of people. Despite our differences, we have this one major thing in common, Jesus. Jesus has saved us and loved us and rescued us. And we, we love him. You get this great picture of this in the book of Revelation. You ever seen this? Where you have every nation and tongue gathered around the throne of Jesus, worshiping him as the great unifier of humanity. You also see this in our church. I mean, look around. All the different hair colors. Being kind, okay? I love it. I love to see how Jesus crosses the generational gaps. He crosses the cultural gaps. He crosses, you know, the class gaps that our culture can create that, that tend to divide us. Jesus brings us together. Amen? All right. Amen. Now, Jesus is not just, though, the most unifying figure. No one can unite like Jesus. But let me say this also. This, this isn't, these aren't mutually exclusive. Jesus is also the most divisive or dividing figure in history. No one has divided or will, we should say, divide humanity like Jesus. I mean, we literally looked at this two weeks ago when we looked at an event that the Bible promises is going to happen at the end of the age. It's called the final judgment. Where all of humanity, irrespective of who they are in society, they're all just humanity before God. And they're all accountable before God with what they did with Jesus. 
And Jesus, the Bible tells us there's a day coming. Jesus actually tells us this about himself in Matthew 23, that there is a great divide coming where Jesus will separate the sheep and the goats. He's going to divide. One day is coming where Jesus will divide all of humanity. And it's not like the good religious people and the bad secular people. It's, it's two categories, the repentant and the unrepentant. That's it. Those who have turned and trusted in Christ and those who have turned away and have rejected Christ. That's the two categories that Scripture teaches. Jesus himself divides all of humanity up into. Now, it's beyond that, though. It's not just that Jesus will divide eternally, but today, let's be honest, Jesus brings division personally, still today, culturally. You ever experience a division with someone over Jesus? I mean, come on, this is life following Jesus. In fact, Jesus said this about himself. Did you ever read this in Luke chapter 12? Jesus said, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? Now, what I love about Jesus is that is a loaded question. And this is like, it's almost like he designed this for a small group conversation, you know? Because it's like, I hope so in a lot of ways. I need peace. Anybody else need peace? Like, but he's, he's making a shocking statement to engage the imagination of his listener, to think, to contemplate. To, by the way, to go deeper in understanding, to not settle for some surface-level understanding of Jesus. But he says, I tell you, not at all. Strong language. This is Jesus speaking, but rather division. And that's not Jesus meek and mild, is it? He says, from now on, I'll tell you, five in one house will be even within the own, your own home. Divided, three against two, two against three. Outnumbered. Father divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. That's normal, you know. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, now, Jesus is using, by the way, what Jesus is using here is he's using like the most painful extent of division that you can experience, which is division within your own household. Do you see this? Like there's, there's by the way, like, I don't know if we'll ever like really get into a study on this, but there's just, there's nothing harder than family. Anybody with me? Like families, families, like I love the family of God. I'm like a follower of Jesus, but I go home and I'm not like pastor Andrew. I'm just Andrew, you know, I'm just Andrew. Just trying to be a brother, a son, you know, an uncle, a nephew. Family's hard. Um, and there's a certain pain level there. There's great pleasure and great pain involved in family that Jesus knows. And so he paints, like, he, he, he wants us to see the furthest extent of how division, like, it's almost like if we're prepared for this, we'll, we'll be able to expect it even in smaller ways. I mean, what an interesting idea, though. Jesus says it. Like, expect that I am going to bring division. He's the great divider. Um. He does this for us personally. He's done this. We see this all throughout history, a division that comes around the person of Jesus. And here in Mark 14, back to the passage that Damien read, we see it here in Mark 14. We see division around Jesus, the great divider in Mark chapter 14, in these events leading up to his betrayal and arrest. Now, this is, I think, similar to the divisions that we, face in our, we can face in our families, our workplaces, in culture, as Christians here in America but here's what's, what we see here in Mark 14. The division in Mark 14 that Jesus brings just through his very existence in this moment is a division that is surrounding this question. The question is, what is Jesus worth? Just meditate on that for a second. Jesus of Nazareth, what is he worth? What's he worth? What's his value? There's divided views of Jesus' worth in this chapter. It's a really interesting contrast between these different characters who all have differing responses and perspectives of Jesus. To some, he's worth everything. To some, he's worth less. To some, he's worth barely anything. To others, he's worthless. There's this interesting contrast here in this passage around the worth of Jesus. There's three characters in this passage that Mark wants us to, and I want to tell you, Mark is, and Peter behind uh, the scenes here, is penning a narrative here that's just um, literarily, literarily, liter literature, 
literary. It's genius, okay? It's literarily genius. The writing here is, is engaging our imaginations in a story that contrasts these three people and their view of Jesus. You have the religious leaders. They have their own understanding and view of Jesus' worth. You have Mary of Bethany, and you see an incredible display of how much Jesus was worth to her. And then, of course, Judas Iscariot. We know exactly what Jesus was worth to him. Let's look at each of these. In this story, the, it starts here with these religious leaders. And if, if we can kind of sum up the division here as we start with this group, they're, in their understanding, simply, Jesus is worth nothing. I mean, that's it. You start with that. You start with, like, the baseline here. Jesus, to them, is worthless. He's worth nothing. In fact, he's an incredible threat to their lives. And their primary goal, they have one objective for Jesus, get him out of here. He's worthless. They're rejecting him. It tells us this in the passage that we read. After two days was the Passover, the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take Jesus by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during their feast, let there be an uproar of the people. Now, Jesus has been telling us that this event is going to happen. He's told his disciples. He's being really clear and open and honest with them. He's like, guys, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm not getting crowned as the king of Israel. I'm going to get a crown of thorns. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. The chief priests and leaders, they have a, a goal. They, I'm on their hit list. You know, they, I'm most wanted, and they are going to kill me. They're, they're going, to, they're going to, to take me and capture me and arrest me to kill me. This is what Jesus has said to his disciples. And we, we've seen that in the heart of these religious leaders. It's been their plan all along to get rid of Jesus. They kind of, again, exemplify this category of Jesus being worth nothing. And here's the reason why, if you remember, why are they doing this? Why is it their mission to deceitfully take Jesus and kill him, but not in such a way that they lose popularity with the people because that's all they cared about was the praise of man rather than what God had to say? The reason is because Jesus threatened their lives. He threatened them, okay? I mean, think about it simply. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God. And oftentimes when the kingdom of God breaks into earth, it frustrates the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of, of this world, the kingdoms of man, the agenda of man doesn't like when the kingdom of God shows up at the door with new plans. Like, hey, I'm here to rearrange the furniture. It, it's, it's offensive, it's a threat to their positions, to their authority, to their public perception, to their jobs, to their identity. For Jesus to show up and, I mean, think about it simply this way. The reason why Jesus is a threat to them is because if, if he's right about all the things he said, about their corrupted worship, about how broken their spiritual leadership is, like if Jesus is right, what does that make them? That makes them wrong. And if they're wrong, which they, you know, a religious leader could never be wrong, about anything spiritual, but if they were wrong, what would that require of them? That would require that they repent, that I turn away from myself as authority. More than that, I've got to bow my knee to this guy who didn't come up in our rabbinical system. He didn't earn the social currency that we often give people. He is of God. He is God in the flesh. He does bring the light of God into this dark world, but the surrender costs too much. It's too much. You see, the idea here in this text is that their minds are made up. Their hearts are set. There's only one thing we can do with this Jesus other than repent and bow our knee to him and worship him, and that's we have to get rid of him. We have to kill him. He's worthless. Now, that sort of get him out of here mindset, let me say this. It's always going to be the mindset in the system of the world. This is not just a first century thing. This is a 21st century thing. This is a 19th century thing. This is a right now thing. This mindset that like it's, you look on at Jesus and you go, I like, your, Jesus, I like his teaching. Don't you love the teaching of Jesus so nice? I like the things he does. He heals people. He, you know, he's, he's considerate towards the poor. He brings the heart of God in such a beautiful way. And, you know, it's like, we'll welcome Jesus just as long as he can coexist with everything else. Coexist. Just as long as he can kind of fall in line of, as one of the many ways to God, as one of the many, many truths and one of the many lifestyles, we'll welcome him just as long he doesn't mess anything up too much. 
okay? As long as he doesn't try to take over, as long as he doesn't insert any sort of self-proclaimed authority over our lives. And this is, you know, kind of how it is today. I mean, this is what you see in our culture, like get Jesus out of here. We don't want him to rule over us. Get the church out of separation of church and state, which means church shut up and get away because calling us to repentance is not what we want to hear. And and so much of the church has accepted that and just kind of has retreated back and we'll do our little Bible studies and we don't want to frustrate the agenda of, of the enemy, of culture. Let's just be comfortable. Let's play it safe. Let's just coexist, you know? And there's a, obviously, there's an opposite spirit of this that's also ugly, where churches are, like, trying to, like, convert people, like, crusader style. Like, chill out, okay? Love people. Serve them. Bring them to Jesus. But don't retreat. Don't retreat because of culture's natural tendency to reject Jesus. They don't want him. They don't invite him. So we go, okay, well, we'll just kind of keep quiet. No, Jesus, we see it here. This is how the system of the world works. Jesus comes in to transform everything for the good, and we don't want him here. We, we want him dead. Now, I want to say this. Lest we, like, sit here in the church, we love to do this in the church, point fingers outside of the world. We love to do that. It's really safe and comfortable in here. We're really happy. We're like, them. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Now, you know, Scripture teaches um, to let judgment begin in the house of God. You know, my dad used to always say it this way, like before you like point at someone, see the like, what is it? Three or so fingers pointing back at yourself. The idea that Jesus taught like looking in the mirror to make sure you don't have a plank in your eye before you call out the sawdust in someone else's eye. And I think that'd be wise for us because listen, this system of the world is something that we're all individually, personally tempted to be conformed to. Have you ever been tempted to keep Jesus out of a part of your life? Like, uh, Jesus, I love you here. Right here is where I want you. And you know what? I really like what you've done here, but please don't enter here. And here's kind of the question that I just asked. Maybe you can ask yourself this question. Is there any area of your life, and I, I hesitate to use the word allowing Jesus into, but you know what I mean there, that you aren't allowing him into. You're saying, Jesus, you got to get out. Um, everybody's different with this. Like when you have guests over, some people have different comfort levels of how clean the house needs to be. You know what I'm talking about? Husbands and wives? Okay. See, like, I'm more of the type that's just kind of like, you know, the house is meant to be lived in, so it's okay, babe, my underwear's on the floor. Like, what? No, that's wrong. That's extreme, right? Like, I'm definitely more of the type of like, I'm much more comfortable, maybe, than I need to be with a mess. Where Britt's like, she's a great host. And she's like, they're not coming over until we hire a cleaning service to come to this house till you get on your knees and clean that floor. Like, the house needs to be presentable, is what I should say. Usually what happens, though, this is the conundrum we get into when someone's coming over with, like, uh, last-minute notice. You ever done this? You clean the house, and then you, like, you take the mess and you quarantine it to a room. And you, like, deadbolt that thing. You hire security to stand at the door with, like, an AK. You're like, don't go in there, okay? Like, it's, it's like the way that we clean, where we're like, you, and, and, like, our biggest fear in life is for someone to know who we really are. Which is like, is this your bathroom? You're like, no! It's not the bathroom, you know? The bone's in my closet. Which is the girl's room, by the way. Um, or our bedroom. And, and, and it's, there's a comfort level we have. We're, we're, we're okay for you to come in here, but we, we're not okay with you seeing what's in here. Do not enter, Jesus. Stay out. Get out of here. But we all face that tendency in our lives. Is there any area of your life that you've boxed Jesus out of? You're keeping him out of maybe some sort of pain that you've experienced. You're keeping him out of a room of a sin that you have, a struggle that you're in that you think you can beat on your own. And by the way, one of the ways that Jesus shows up at that door is he shows up with this church, with community, with loving friends that are like, hey, I'm here to help. Like, and we can just tidy up our lives in a presentable way while hiding what's really in the room. And Jesus, you know what Jesus says actually to the lukewarm church of Revelation? He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. 
He says, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. The context of this is a bunch of Christians that have settled for a useless Christianity that checked the boxes of categor- categorical Jesus. Do you know what I'm saying? Categorical Jesus. I'll vote this way. I'll go to church this way. I'll do my Bible. Boom, boom, boom. But surrender to Jesus? Like Jesus, Lord of some. And Jesus calls them lukewarm. They're neither hot nor cold. They're not useful at all to the kingdom. And, and th- you know, this is the verse that we usually use. Like, I've heard this a lot for, like, altar calls. Like, Jesus at the door of your heart, he's knocking. That's beautiful, okay? But this is for the church. Did you know that? This is for Christians that have categorized Jesus and allowed him into some parts of their lives, but not others. Jesus, don't touch my business. Jesus, don't enter my relationship. Jesus, don't enter how I'm parenting. Jesus, don't enter how I'm spending my time or my money, please. You can come in here, but you can't come in here. Now, I just want you to notice the heart and the tone of Jesus in this illustration, this presentation. I mean, I'm going to come in, and I'm going to dine with you, relationship and fellowship. I'm going to be with you. Our biggest fear is that Jesus finds the mess in our rooms, the mess in our lives, and he condemns us, and he rebukes us, and he rejects us. That's our fear. That's our fear about letting people into those rooms. The same thing is with Jesus. But notice here in this passage, Jesus says, I'm not coming into that area of your life to destroy you or condemn you. Let me in so that I can heal and I can restore. Let me in because only I really know the best way for your life to be lived. See, in Jesus, there's abundance of life. That's what he's promising here. So allow him in. This is the first vision of worth. The religious leaders model model this idea where Jesus is worth nothing. And is there any area of your and my life where we have said that practically? Jesus, you're not worth inviting into this space. Now, the contrast of the religious leaders is Mary of Bethany. If to the religious leaders, Jesus is worth nothing... With this woman, Mary of Bethany, we see that Jesus instead is worth everything. Every single thing. We know that this woman is is Mary of Bethany from John's account. John chapter 12 tells the the parallel account of this story. And what we learn is this this event actually happened before the uh, Palm Sunday. Mark is actually flashing back to tell us an important story that's actually going to be connected to Judas in a second. But he shows us a woman that had a different dividing view of Jesus. The religious leaders saw Jesus as worth nothing. There were some areas of, of our lives we'll allow him into, and there's others that will box him out. But Mary Bethany modeled someone who said that Jesus is worth everything. Just notice the company she's in of people who are just living from gratitude for who Jesus is. They just consider him worth it all because of what he's done for them and how he saved them and redeemed them. It says, in being in Bethany, this is a few days prior, about five days prior, Jesus is at the house of Simon the leper. This is likely a man who had leprosy, could be the leper that we see healed earlier in Mark. Um, And now he's been healed and made whole. We know that because he's in the house with other people and he's welcomed into the fellowship and the community without any fear of of, uh, transmission and it being contagious. I just love, too, that he kept his old name. He's like, I'm Simon the leper. And they're like, you don't have leprosy. He's like, you're exactly right. Let me tell you why. And we've all got like a Andrew the something. You know what I'm saying? We've all got our our weakness, our struggle, our pain point. Here's Simon the leper. He carries his testimony around with him, even in his very name. And And Jesus sat at the table at the house of Simon the leper. We know Bethany was kind of like the retreat center that Jesus would always go to. Some of his best and closest friends lived there. And a woman comes in having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Now, who is this woman? We get some more details. This is one of Jesus' closest friends. This is Mary of Bethany. Mary of Bethany. She's the sister of Lazarus and who else? And Martha. These three siblings that all experience Jesus in their own way. Lazarus has quite a story, that guy. That guy, you know, it's like he's, he's gone to death and come back again, you could say. That guy died and came back. He literally did. Jesus brought him back from the dead. And John tells us that Lazarus is there like a day after coming out of that tomb, being dead. You know, he, the New King James said that he was so dead that he began to stinketh, you know. And Jesus like, was like, you need to come out of that grave, bro. You stinketh. And Jesus brought him back to life, and he's at the table there. I mean, imagine. 
<laughs> Whatever your Thanksgiving dinner table is going to look like this Thursday, man. You got a guy that was dead less than 24 hours ago. And he's like still like a little like, I'm not dead, but I'm still like coming back to my body, you know. I don't know. Um, you've got Simon. The, I mean, what a beautiful table. This is the church, by the way. We're just a table of a bunch of people with stories and broken situations that have given, been given a seat at the table with Jesus. He's like, come pull up a seat. You're welcome here. Just a beautiful display. Mary and Martha, the siblings of Jesus, are there as well. As always, Martha, her spiritual gift was service. So she was serving the Lord, active about the Lord. And we know her sister Mary of Bethany. We don't know everything about her story. We have some assumptions and ideas. Mary was especially thankful to Jesus. And she found her happy place. She found her life's fulfillment at his feet. It's like everything went away when she could just be at his feet. As Martha is serving, Jesus said, Martha, look at your sister Mary. She found the good thing. She's here to just sit at my feet. It's not about what she can do for me. She just wants to know who I am, receive from me. And once again, Mary's at the feet of Jesus here. It's almost every time you see Mary in the gospel accounts, she's at the feet of Jesus. Almost every time. It's beautiful. This time, she comes in, and she has an alabaster flask. That, that flask in and of itself was worth an exorbitant amount of money, and it was filled with very costly oil of spikenard. We, we learn later that this oil was worth 300 denarius. One denarius was about a day's wages um, for even like the average Roman citizen. So we're talking about a year's salary. In that culture, th this is likely something that she's inherited as an heirloom. Um, like, this is whatever, like, whatever the most expensive asset you have, this is that. Does that make sense? So, so this is the most valuable thing that Mary owns. In her culture, it's a form of great currency. And without hesitation, she comes in and she breaks the flask. And she pours it on Jesus' head. The Bible says she even down at his feet begins to wash his feet with her hair. This picture of like humility. This posture of, I owe you everything. Not, and it's not obligatory. Like I owe you everything. It's like I wish I had more to give you. Because of who you are and how, how amazing you are. I've tasted and I've seen that you're worth everything. What a contrast, isn't it? She, she goes, I'm, I'm going to sacrifice it all. This is a, can I say this? This is a beautiful picture of worship. That's what this is. It's a picture of worship. Worship is not what we can bring God with our mouths. It's what we can bring God with our hearts. It's what we can bring before him with our lives. You know, we're called to worship God in a similar picture. I love Romans 12.1. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, Paul says, by the mercies of God, that, that you present, just like Mary presented this costly, valuable oil. Here's what we're called to present to Jesus. We're, we're called to present our bodies, our whole lives, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is just our reasonable service. It's just reasonable. It just makes sense for someone who's been so loved and cared for by God to just say, God, here's all of me. You didn't give me some of your life on the cross. You gave all of your life. You don't give me portions of your love. You give me all of your love. You give me all of you. And I just want to give you all of me. It's not obligatory. It's natural. It's responsive. This is what happens when you truly encounter Jesus. This is what happens. He gets everything. You're just like, you're worth it all. And, and now, not just... My oil, not just my business, not just this part of my life. You're worth all of me, my whole life. I just exist like an alabaster flask. Here I am. I just exist for you. If you want God, you're going to break me sometimes. And, and that brokenness in life is just for you to be worshipped more, for you to get more of me. Sometimes God, by the way, has to break us to get the oil out of our lives. He's got to take us to these points where... We're, 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 we're at the end of ourselves to give him all that we have left. And that's what we see with Mary. You know, the Bible says this. This is really beautiful. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, check us out. Paul says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Notice this. And through us, he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Isn't that awesome? 
We are the alabaster flask that is poured out before Jesus. It's our way to say, Jesus, you're worth everything. You've saved me. You love me. You've rescued me. My whole life is in service to you. It's only reasonable. May, may, may just like that whole room was filled with the fragrance of that costly oil, like what a vision for Boca, what a vision for South Florida, what a vision for your neighborhood, what a vision for your workplace, that there would be this fragrance of worship. People look on at you and they go, what? You're giving everything to, what is, what is your whole life for? There's this fragrance. Like what, is, what are you living towards? Well, more than just myself, for, for Jesus who's worth everything. Now here's what often happens when we do that. When we, work, when we say this, when we say, Jesus, you're worth everything. You're worth my family heirloom. You're, you're, you're even worth a year's salary. I'm going to give you all of me. When we live that way, here's what often happens. We'll face criticism. And that criticism is often a ploy from the enemy to discourage you from the extravagant worship that you're living. You ever face that? You're like, oh, I'm being too much. I need to tone it back, Okay. A little too extravagant, all right? I need to just be a little bit more reasonable. You got to be a little more like scholarly and intelligent, you know? Use more wisdom. What are you doing? Too radical. You're being too generous with your time for God. You're being too generous in your life with God. And this is what happened. It says this, that there were some who were indignant among themselves. And they said, why, why was this fragrant oil wasted? Why are you wasting that, Mary? That's, that's your grandma." Mary's, I don't know, right? That, like, she gave that to you. What are you doing? And it's not even just that. It's not even sentimental. It says that their criticism was that could have been sold for, you know, the price, 300 denarii, and given to the poor. And notice, like, this looks like they're being really spiritual, but we're going to find out their motive was really wicked and evil. Here's the spirit of it. They criticized her sharply. Why would you do that? Why would you live like that? Well, she's there pouring out worship. There are these other people, and they're pouring out criticism of her worship. The idea here is summarized there in that first verse when they ask that question, why are you wasting this? This is often how worship can feel. A life that's lived in service to worship God, to be a fragrance of worship for his name, will, by the way, listen, it will seem wasteful to others. There's times where even you'll go, is this worth it? You ever thought that? You ever thought that? This is early. Every Sunday? Football Sunday? Brunch? Sunday brunch is nice. Okay. My whole life? Like, have you ever thought this way? Think about it. We spend our time. We spend our effort. Is this worth it? Am I wasting time? Am I wasting effort? Seeking Jesus? Am I wasting my mornings, I spend my morning, we spend our Sundays, we spend our years, we spend our lives. Is it really worth it? That's what they're criticizing in Mary. What are you doing? You're wasting, you're wasting a resource. You're wasting something. Think about this. You're wasting something on Jesus. That's what they're saying. You know, as we ask that question, is it worth it? I think Mary would say, that's not the question. The question is, is Jesus worth it? And what she's saying here is, he's worth it. He's, this is someone who's encountered God. They're like, he's worth everything. The way the psalmist says is, you're worthy of it all. In the book of Revelation, it says that, that you are worthy, O God, to receive glory, glory, honor, and praise because you created all things and it's by your will that they exist and were created. You are worthy of it all. This is what, what Paul says in Philippians 3.8. He goes, I count all things lost in life. I've, I've just gotten rid of, like everything, he says, I've counted as lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. In the Greek, it's a dunghill, literally what that word means, that I may gain Christ. Paul has so encountered who God is and the worth of God that he goes, in comparison to Jesus in my life, I look at everything else like a dunghill. It's all a dunghill in comparison to the surpassing worth of Jesus. We see this modeled in Mary, and Jesus affirms her. I love this. He says to her, don't you love when Jesus tells other people to leave other people alone? I just love that. He's like, leave her alone. Get your criticisms. You're not helping anyone with your sharp, unhelpful criticisms, with your angry criticisms. 
You're a self-appointed critic. God hasn't called you to be the person to change them. You don't even know them. And, there's, and he's like, just get it back off. Look, why do you trouble her? This is really sweet. He says, she has done a good work for me. Now, as I was studying, I found something really interesting. In the Greek, there are two words for good. There's the word agathos, which describes a thing which is morally good. And there's another Greek word. It's the Greek word kalos, which describes a thing which is not only morally good, but it's also lovely. And that's the word that Jesus uses here. He goes, the thing that she's chosen, it might be off to you, but it's lovely to me. It's lovely to me. It has, and, and this is, uh, William Barclay says, the word means to literally have a certain bloom of charm upon it. I just love that. He's like, when I look at her, leave her alone. What she's doing has a bloom of charm of worship on me. Back off of her. Let her worship me. Now, one of the reasons why Jesus said this is because out of all the people in the room, it was only Mary of Bethany that not only saw Jesus worthy of it all, but in this event... Mary, out of, the, out of all the disciples, is the only one that's actually aligned with Jesus in this moment. She, she's worshiping him, but out of all the disciples who are rebuking her, that's money for the poor. She's the one who's aligned with him in his will and his word. Look what he says. You have the poor with you always, hopefully, right, church? And whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me, you're not going to have me with you always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for my burial. She's, she's, she's like, the, like all the disciples are in denial that Jesus is actually going to die. Like we see it with Peter. When they come, he's like, all right, Lord, it's time to fight. I'm going to chop off your head, your ear. I meant your ear. Got your ear, okay? And so we see in the story, we see this like militant response. And Jesus goes, oh, I'm going to lay down my life. It's, listen, it's not the spiritual critical majority who are aligned with Jesus here. It's Mary who has a sensitive ear to his word. She's been listening to what he's saying. And there's a big difference than just agreeing with the popular spiritual majority talking points and having an ear to the word of Jesus and what he has to say and what he's been saying. He's been saying that he's going to die. So Mary goes, well, let me honor you. Let, let, you're worth it all in worship, and I'm going to anoint your body for the burial that's coming. She's the one that's aligned with Jesus. It's really beautiful, that surrender. Now, we'll close with this last figure, and it's, oh, this is important to say. Jesus says this. This is kind of cool. He says, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, even in Boca, this woman, has what she's done will also be told in a sermon on November 20th, 2020. This is what Jesus said. He's, he, he predicted this moment, okay? It's going to be told everywhere she goes about what she's done. I also love that Jesus is, like, so confident that he's going to resurrect He's like, this God, I'm going to come back to life, okay? He's like, this gospel is going to get preached. I'm coming back to life. Just a really beautiful moment here. Uh, Jesus makes a promise about this woman, um, which is kind of, like I see this a lot. It's almost like God loves to broadcast the faith and the stories of those that don't seek the limelight. God loves to broadcast the faith and the lives of those that don't seek the limelight. He just loves to showcase people who are faithful. Um, it just delights his heart. Lastly, we have Judas Iscariot. You might have heard of this guy. Not a lot of kids named Judas for a reason, okay? All right. You know, a lot of biblical names. Not, there's Judas. That's my son's name. Okay. Somebody, my neighbor, when we first moved in, was like, hey, Judas, hey, little guy. I'm like, that's not his name. <laughs> Different guy. Judas is scary. We'll close with this. Judas is worth, Jesus is worth something to Judas. Um, that something is 30 pieces of silver. That's what Jesus is worth. It's not that Jesus is worth nothing, but not as much as this. So the Bible tells us that, that Judas, one of the 12, he went to the chief priest to, to betray to betray Jesus to them. He went to them on his own initiative. He knew they were looking for them, and he capitalized on the opportunity to betray Jesus. When they heard it, they were glad. They rejoiced, and they promised to give him money. So while well, well, Mary is seeking to extravagantly, inconveniently give up all of her life to Jesus, Judas is seeking convenience, 
I need a more convenient life. How can I conveniently barely be a Christian? She's seeking how she, how he could, rather, he was seeking how he could conveniently betray him. Now, there's a reason why Mark goes back to the story of Mary of Bethany. Remember, that's not, that's not, the story we just read about the alabaster jar, that didn't happen on Thursday. It's likely happening on a Saturday or a Sunday. There's a reason why Mark is including this before he tells us about Judas. Can I tell you why? Thank you. John 12 tells us that one of his disciples, Judas, of, uh, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii, but it was given to the poor? This was Judas who made this statement. He, he probably got everyone else fired up, too. He's like, you see, well, that's a way we could give that to the poor. And Peter's like, yeah, you're right. And then he's like, Mark, come here, you know? Like, they're, they're kind of getting fired. You ever had that happen where you're in the grocery line, and you're like, you're not in a rush, and it's fine? It's like you're two people behind. It's going a little slow, but you've got time. And someone behind you is like, they should hire more people. Why isn't anybody on that register? And you're like, I know. <laughs> you go from, like, enjoying your life to being angry, you know? Judas is the, the one stirring the pot. He's the one who said it. He's the one who rebuked her. He's the one that saw her worship as wasteful. Why? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box. He was the treasurer. And he used to take what was put in it. You know, this gets into a big conversation here about God's sovereignty and man's free will. And we know that God chose Judas to be that son of perdition. Judas wasn't an innocent betrayer of Jesus. In his own will, That there was something at the heart, at his very heart, literally in his heart. Now, I want to say this about Judas. Uh, scripture tells us here, at the end of the day, the reason why he was the chief critic, the reason why he did all this, it's very simple. Judas loved money more than Jesus. He valued money more than Jesus. How much was Jesus worth? 30 pieces of silver. That's how much he was worth. Judas is the final conclusion on the fact that you could have everything and anything you're looking for spiritually to be the next thing you need to take your faith seriously and it not be enough. Judas is, in a sense, he's the evidence that signs and wonders, whatever you're looking for from Jesus, whatever other thing you're seeking from God to, to prove once and once and for all that he really is God and he's worth your whole life, Judas proves that it will never be enough. Because at the end of the day, the issue is not anything else except for our hearts and what we love. I mean, think about Judas. Judas was a guy who had it all, he saw it all, and he knew it all. All three of these. Like, spiritually speaking, Judas had it all. Like, the kind of things that you would think would, like, if we just surround this person with these, it, this is how so much of our culture lives with people with dysfunction. We just got to put them in these environments. If they have this environment, like, Judas, like you, maybe you've had some great spiritual community in your life, great teaching, great fellowship. No one has had a better community experience in terms of value than Judas. Jesus was his small group leader. He had it all. The community, the discipleship, it wasn't enough. Judas saw it all. He saw every sign and wonder that you could hope for. He saw it all. Every miracle that Jesus did, Judas was there. He saw it. You know, Judas knew it all. He heard every, if I could just know a little bit more, then maybe. And we can live like this, always like grasping for the wind, the vanity of the next spiritual thing. When the, the issue all along is really your heart. Here's an example of someone who had it all, saw it all, knew it all. At the end of the day, it was, it was his heart. His heart, listen, his love for Jesus was eclipsed by love for something else. And so when that thing presented itself, at the end of the day, because Jesus, you don't fully have my heart, you have my time, you have my life, I'll go to church, I'll do all these things, but you're worth the equivalent of something else. His heart was after other things. You know, I think this is important to remember, like, it wasn't like everyone was like, when Jesus goes, hey, one of you is going to betray me. It wasn't like they were all like, 
Jesus we know, Judas, <laughs> sketchball over there, you know? It's not like, Ju- like the 12 were like this and Judas was always like, me, I'm Judas, you know? <laughs> I'm Judas. Judas was, a, Judas was one, this, is a, this will mess with your theology, he was one of the 12 that was sent out with power to cast out demons. He's working miracles. He looks the part. Nobody could have guessed. They had no idea who would, is it I, Lord? No one said, oh, it's going to be Judas, of course. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew where his heart was at. So what follows here is the narrative of Judas's, as we read, plotting and scheming to betray Jesus. Jesus points it out, and I'll invite the band up to close this out right here where Jesus closes with us. I just want you to see this final moment. I'll let you go here into this beautiful Sunday. Each of these figures, the religious leaders, Mary of Bethany and Judas of Iscariot, they each had their own view of what Jesus is worth. And they they challenge us to think about what Jesus is worth to us, don't they? It's like, Jesus, are you worth something? Are you worth nothing in some areas? Or can I be like Mary? Can I so encounter who you are that I say like Paul, that everything else is nothing compared to who you are? And I live into that, that radical worship of Jesus. If you remember where this passage ends, it ends with the Lord's table. And at the Lord's table, as we read it there, as Jesus comes to that Passover meal with his disciples, as Jesus and his disciples went to sacrifice a literal Passover lamb. We imagine Jesus watching that event happening, thinking about what's to follow him the next day as the lamb of God. Jesus goes to the table with his disciples, and he breaks bread pours out some wine and he says these are symbols of my blood and my body and he says this here's what they're worth my blood and my body are here to institute through the cross here's what my life is worth I'm going to institute a new covenant between man and God my blood is going to have listen salvific value What what is Jesus worth? His very life is the only life that is able to pay for your life and my life. That's what he's worth. He, He goes to a cross and he takes upon himself our sin. But what made that worthwhile is that he was without sin. He was the unblemished lamb. He he was the one and him alone whose blood could redeem you and me. And not just kind of get the job done, but absolutely powerfully redeem us. The Bible says this about the blood of Jesus, the value of Jesus. The Bible says that we ought to know that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from our aimless conduct. So much more valuable. Jesus is worth so much more than just silver or gold. But what we were redeemed by is the precious blood of Jesus. This is what he's worth. He went to a cross, and wherever you're at today, whether you're in Christ or you're exploring Christ or you're like, you're over Jesus, whatever it is, there's a fact that 2,000 years ago, this same Jesus hung on a cross. That's indisputable. We know that happened. We also know that they couldn't find his body three days later. And all of his followers gave up his life because they said he rose from the dead. What you have to ask yourself about that crucifixion is what was happening there? And is that event in history truly relevant to my life today? And here's the Christian message. I have good news for you. It is relevant. The Bible, as as much as we might see it kicking and screaming, getting dragged into the 21st century, the Bible is, is ultimately pointing to this good news of who God is toward you despite how you've been towards him. He's a God of love and grace. He went to the extent in his love and grace to purchase your life back from death. Jesus points to that here at this meal. He points to his blood that's going to be shed. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, what the Bible says is you can become one by as simply as calling out to Jesus. Just saying, Jesus, I I see that I'm a sinner. And I agree with you that I can't work my way back to you. 
I'm going to receive what you've done for me. You're the Passover lamb. Judgment doesn't have to fall on me because I'll become new in you. I see the cross where you took my sin and I receive your grace and your forgiveness. Even in the bulletin you got when you came in, there's a little prayer of faith and repentance that you can connect to, to God with today. And just pray to him and say, Jesus, I, I pray that you'd forgive me, that you'd redeem me, that you'd set me free, that you'd adopt me into your family, that you'd make me one of your own. I turn from my sins and I want to trust you. Just read that prayer and connect with him in this moment. Now for the church, we have these communion elements and this is where we want to close our time. Jesus institutes the Lord's table in this passage, giving us, his church, a special meal to partake, to commemorate and connect with his suffering in our lives today.